Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. My name is Jared. I'm joined here today with uh, one of our writers and researchers, Austin. Hello, hello. And our content lead, Alec. Hey. So today we're doing something a little bit special. Uh, Ryan is not with us today because he has not yet seen Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, he's going to be seeing it soon, and we may revisit the movie uh, with a more detailed explanation later. But since the legacy of this movie is still in flux, and there's a really interesting kind of cultural conversation going on about this movie, I wanted to dive in first. So I gathered the Wisecrack crew who has seen the movie and had something to say, and we decided that we would dive right in. Uh, I've only seen the movie once. I imagine you guys have only seen the movie once as well, so I don't have meticulous notes. I don't have all the lines in front of me. I haven't been able to study the script like I usually do before these podcasts, but it's pretty fresh in my memory. I've been putting a lot of thought into it, and I've been reading a lot of the comments and articles and stuff like that, so there's a lot to talk about. And uh, guys, before we dive in, just want to say spoiler warning, spoiler warning, spoiler warning. If you haven't seen The Last Jedi yet, do so. Pause it right now, go see the movie, and then come back. So first, I want to just go around and hear what you guys thought about it, just your overall thoughts on what you thought of Star Wars Episode Eight. So let's start with the new kid on the block to this podcast. Let's start with Alec. Oh, boy. <laughs> I really like it, but the more I think about it, I like it a little bit less. However, I think maybe mm. when the, the next one comes out, it'll put everything in context and I'll love it again. All right, cool. All right, I'll go next. I'm pretty lukewarm about this movie and actually... I'm the opposite of Alec. The more I think about it, the more I like it. But to be honest, the actual viewing experience, I was mostly bored. I was bored for pretty much the whole time except the last like 20 minutes of the movie, which I love. So I've actually had more fun thinking about the movie than actually viewing the movie. And I find it really interesting, the reaction to the movie. And that's why I'm really excited to talk to you guys about it. So, yeah, I think it's still in flux for me. But anyway, let's end with Austin. Austin, what did you think? Well, I guess then if uh, if Alec liked it, but then he's not sure, he thinks he's liking it less, and you were lukewarm, but you think you're liking it more, I'm just going to take the sliding scale down all the way, and I'm going to say <laughs> I hated this movie. Like, Woo! I thought it was bad. Wait, did you like The last the Force Awakens? I loved it. I loved The Force hmm. Awakens. I, I loved yeah. The Force Awakens, and I thought this was bad. I actually tweeted out, and I, I don't remember exactly what it was because it was like a long thing. I said, Star Wars, and then semicolon, the last not-so-subtle, overly dramatic, drippingly sentimental, hokey, moralistic uh, exposition on the decline of Western civilization, Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. I, I want to hear first from you two. What is your general background with Star Wars? Do you guys consider yourself Star Wars fans? Yeah, tell, tell me a bit about how Star Wars has, that the presence Star Wars has had in your lives. I, I'll, I'll go first. I'll say that, let the hate mail begin because Star Trek is better. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh no, shots fired, motherfuckers. <laughs> I, I won't defend the new, the new Star Treks, but <laughs> I, I, I saw the Star Wars movies as a kid. I saw the prequels when they came out. I saw Force Awakens. It, it's always coming out on Christmas, and that's the only time I go see movies is around that time because I'm back home and not in New York City. And and yeah, I, I like The Force Awakens. I saw Rogue One. I like that. And I like this one. So... <laughs> But you've seen all of them, right? Obviously. Yeah, but some of them, I you know, I don't know if it's The Empire Strikes Back or, or the the uh, episode six. I maybe haven't seen in a decade. Okay, I mean, okay. yeah, I mean, my experience is uh, I, I was not a Star Trek 
geek growing up at all. Um, I, I appreciate it more as I'm older, if that makes any mm. sense. You know what I mean? Wait, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. Star Trek. So I, I, I was responding oh, okay. to Alec. But but Star Wars was my was my thing when I was a kid. My mom I was raised by a single mother and when you're like uh, like raised by a single mother and you're poor and you don't have like a blockbuster card, she takes you to the public library and that's where you can rent VHSs and that's what we did. <laughs> so I would always rent James Bond or Star Wars. And so the original trilogy, 456, I watched until the tape fell off of those tapes, you know. And then – so I was a huge fan of all three. And and then the prequels, obviously I was still relatively young. I think I was like, you know, early – like preteen, early teens, something like that um, when they came out. And then up until, you know, like later teens. And I, you know, appreciated them for being a part of the legacy and didn't get critical of them until I got a little bit older. And now I can understand some of the critical commentary on them and some of the the, the acting choices and some of the the, the uh, character choices and things like that. But so I'm a big fan. I mean, it, it's a part of my family. And I always actually go during Christmas time with my mom and my aunt when I am back in Southern California. And this year I'm not there. Last year or not last year, I guess two years ago. I saw The Force Awakens with my mom and my aunt around Christmas time. So I went into this movie and I was like teary eyed before the movie started because I was thinking about how I'm not going to be home this year. And I was thinking <laughs> about like my mom and my, how my mom used to take her like little boy. And she was like this, you know, 22 year old single mother and was doing her damnedest. So Star Wars has a huge like hold in my soul. So I, I fucking love Star Wars. It, it is rich with meaning for me. I'm really glad to I'm really glad to hear that because now I'm ten times more interested to hear why you hated this so much. But I'll just say that I had a lot of friends that were really, really into Star Wars. It's kind of funny. Like I I was in a friend group of all of us kind of had our own epic nerddoms. I was a big Matrix nerd, but my friends were big Star Wars nerds. And, you know, of course I hung out with them, so I was like half the Star Wars nerd, but um I loved the original films as a kid, watched them all many, many times. When the prequels came out, I was young enough to where when episode one came out at least initially, it the spell worked on me. I really liked episode one as a kid. You know, when I got a little bit older, I started to be able to look at it critically, yeah, look right. past the fact that the, that the lightsaber fight between Darth Maul and Obi-Wan was just so fucking badass when I would just watch that over and over <laughs> again. Yeah, you could over you could overlook Jake Lloyd's acting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Jar Jar Binks I was and... <laughs> I was I was luckily young enough to do that. <laughs> Having said that, I actually think uh, maybe later on this podcast we could do a whole thing on the prequels because if I may just give my hot take for a second, like if you just if you take the prequels and you just put them in an outline form about just like what happens, I think they're like really good. Oh um, man, more. It's hate just mail. the execution is all <laughs> fucked. Mm. Anyway, so. If anyone is actually still listening, since I'm sure that pissed a lot of people off, <laughs> let's start talking about let's start talking about this film. So, has have you guys been looking at the I guess the Metacritic and the Rotten Tomatoes very divisive scores among fans? Have you guys been aware of that? I have been. Yeah, I am because you told me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so first I want to hear. So Austin, first, do those concerns that you see with the fan base or like the hardcore Star Wars nerds is does that overlap with why you were disappointed at all? Actually the weird thing is not at all. So so the hardcore Star Wars fan that generally at least as it's being represented in the like dozen or so articles that I've read and in the sort of Rotten Tomato score seems to ba be based on the fact that certain elements of the Star Wars universe weren't 
dealt with in a way that corresponded to a lot of the speculation over the last couple of years since the initiation um, from Abrams' The Force Awakens, right? And so a lot of people felt disappointed with re- regards to like the reveal of Ray's parents or maybe the reveal the that we don't really know, but there wasn't like that Luke, I am your father moment. So uh, they're literally of, pissed that it's not the same thing as The Empire Strikes Back? Is that I what think so. pissed at? Well, I think part of the reason that The Force Awakens was so beloved too is that it's essentially a retread of A New Hope, right? And yeah. And so yeah, I think so many people loved that because it? it was just saturated with nostalgia. And so you right. get a lot of people in the fandom that they didn't quite get the nostalgia. And so a lot of people are saying Ryan Johnson is basically giving a middle finger to the the legacy, if you will, of the fans of Star Wars who feel like they own this property. And I think that's where a lot of the frustration comes from is they don't feel – that a lot of the fans don't feel that Johnson – paid enough of paid enough attention to kind of giving the fans what they were expecting or wanting or hoping or whatever and that he kind of did his own thing with it and then of course there's elements about like the humor people feel like the humor was a little bit over the top and that it yeah, fell on his face and so i i see that i i can see that so but my my gripes aren't actually with regards to that so i won't talk right now about what my gripes are but just with regards to kind of how fandom is so divided. The critics love it, but it seems like the hardcore Star Wars nerds are divided. My criticisms are actually not the same. I agree. In fact, all the things that you just mentioned are reasons that I actually really like the movie. I like that in a time where most Disney properties, you know, people will criticize Marvel movies for being movies that are made by committee. Stylistically, you can't... It's a weird world when stylistically you can't tell the difference between a movie directed by James Gunn and a movie directed by uh, Kenneth Branagh. That's a weird world that we live in, and that's (laughs) what you have with Marvel movies. But And so I see a lot of those reviews of people saying, oh, you know, it's totally Disney-fied. You know, Disney basically corporately mandated this movie. I actually think that people are wrong. I think Disney really did the thing that everyone accuses them not of doing, in which they gave the most beloved IP in the world to an auteur filmmaker and said, go to town. We don't give a shit. Hmm. And I think that's what happened. And I think people are actually pissed off about that. But I love the fact that that happened. And I loved how abrasive some of Ryan Johnson's choices are, including Ray's parents being drunkards, junkers, uh, Snoke giving given no backstory, him just dying You know, it's weird. Um, I went to a DGA screening of the movie The Phantom Thread. I know this is going to sound like a little bit of a a tangent, but uh, so that's directed by filmmaker Paul Thomas Anderson, who's very much an art house director. And at the end of the movie, they had a Q&A with Paul Thomas Anderson. And who was the person who was interviewing him? It was Ryan Johnson. Hmm. And the interesting thing here is that, Ryan, you would not expect the guy who's directing Star Wars to be chummy bros with Paul Thomas Anderson, who's made The Master, recently Inherent Vice, and now The Phantom Thread. But from that conversation, I really got the feeling that he is a film nerd. Mm. He loves movies. And in a sense, one of my kind of hot takes on this movie is that Johnson took back Star Wars away from kind of like lore nerds, away from Star Wars nerds, and took it back for film fans, people who like movies. Mm. Well, um, now, now that's – I mean that's an interesting point to bring up is when you have a beloved IP like this that has made how many billions of dollars and that, that, that has made these billions of dollars on the backs of so many of these fans, is it a disservice to not feed them back something that really is a part of – 
a part of their lives that they kind of own a stake in, in, in a non-literal sense. Of course, not literally speaking, the studio owns the, the actual stake in it, but they feel like they own a stake in it. So is that sort of – is that rude? Is that kind of uncouth? <laughs> See, it's a great question, one I think about all the time, because now that more than any other time in history, artists are always acutely aware of what their audience wants. And I, I don't know, it bothers me to even for, for that to even be the case, because how can you really be an artist if people are already telling you what they want? Then you can literally just give it to them. Uh, so in a way, sometimes I become a bit of a radical and suggest that you actually owe it to your audience to not give them what they want, to show them what they want. You know, they think they want A, but you need to, if you're a really ballsy filmmaker, you prove to them that they want B. And whether or not Ryan Johnson succeeds in that is a is a different story. But so, for example, um, this movie does seem to be a little bit... So, so Austin, uh, one of the reasons I'm really glad to have you here is that uh, we actually just did a quick take on Star Wars that's actually coming out today, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. And we talk about how a little some of this film, especially the ending, is a throwback to Westerns and maybe even revisionist Westerns yeah. that uh, you and I discussed. Actually, all three of us discussed when we did our video on Logan. Right. So the end of the movie ends with that final scene, which I which this is the reason I like the movie. They turn Luke Skywalker into essentially, and I want to know if you guys agree with this, a coward, a retired gunslinger who, you know, can't stand up to the legend of Luke Skywalker. And at the end, you know, there's all this talk in the movie about, uh, you know, when hope is so dismal, when the Empire or the First Order literally has the resistance by a string. Or what is it that uh, Huck says? It's like they're like a, a, a they're at the end of a fishing pole. Like we, we almost have them. We don't need heroes. We don't need the pose that, you know, go in guns ablaze and getting everyone killed. Heroes aren't going. What we need to do is preserve the light. And at the end, Luke, in a sense, sacrifices himself, knowing that Luke Skywalker, the man, is a coward and he's he's ineffective. He's not the badass that everyone thinks he is. The best gift that Luke Skywalker can give is to sacrifice himself and become a symbol, uh, a symbol of hope. Um, and this is very reminiscent of some of like the westerns, like the end of the man who shot Liberty Valance, where. Ransom Stoddard, the idealistic lawyer, becomes a symbol of hope and idealism in order to order the West. Or in um, Fort Apache, uh, Colonel Thursday becomes a image of uh, glory within the U.S. military, even though in reality he was a shitty person in order to allow the U.S. military to continue their duties. And you know, for you know, the thing about George Lucas and Ryan Johnson is they're both. They're both USC film grad film nerds, you know, and I and I feel like a lot of the inspirations for A New Hope was uh, John Ford's The Searchers. Both of those movies I just mentioned are John Ford movies. And to me, this is a lot about I'm taking Star Wars away from fan culture and bringing it back to cinema culture. Do you guys agree with that or am I reaching too far here? I think it's a little bit of the two. I think Ryan Johnson is a Star Wars nerd, but also a, a film nerd. And... I don't know. I think it's weird for people to say, you know, what we want from Star Wars is literally the exact, you know, we liked A Force Awakens because it was exactly like A New Hope. Therefore, this should be exactly like Empire Strikes Back. And that's like a very weird request to ask Disney and Hollywood just to keep making the same thing over and over again. Because if you say that about anything else, people will be like, what the fuck? Yeah. But at the same time, like, I think the there's like specific 
parts of homage to Star Wars that sets Star Wars fandom. And he uses that knowledge to kind of subvert our expectations in a way that, you know, probably the fans didn't like. So, you know, the fact that Ray's parents are nobody, that there is a cave where you think that Ray is going to get some magical insight, but she really doesn't learn anything. Unlike Empire Strikes Back, where, you know, Luke sees the image of his, you know, uh, Darth Vader's deformed mask or, or whatever that was. Uh, so... Yeah, I, 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 I think he's towing the line a little bit. Yeah, um, I, I think in a sense, I mean, you also see shades of Gerard in this, which we talked about in our um, the second installment of our Nolan video as well, right? For the Wisecrack edition, where you get this, this symbol that is there to be imitated. Or you've talked a lot about this, Jared, I know in random videos where you talk about the noble lie, right? Mm-hmm. That needs to be told. And, and there is some talk in this, in, in this film about the idea of the legend of Luke Skywalker and that this idea of the legend is necessary. The myth is important to keep alive, to instill hope in the next generation, to sort of perpetuate resistance to the oppressive power, right? And so, yeah, I can see the allusion, if you will, to the Western, but I think even more foundationally than that, it's an allusion to the Western myth. I don't mean Western as in the film genre, but I mean as in like Manifest Destiny, the Western myth or Western civilization, the myth of um, enlightenment almost in a lot of ways. And so there is there is this allusion to the good side versus the bad side and that you have to have these myths or these lies that are told in order to kind of quell violence and you have to bind people together through the myth and through the story or through religion or through the transcendent the appeal, appeal to the fantasy. And so, yeah, yeah, that's there. That's absolutely there. Um, and I think then explicitly it wouldn't surprise me that someone like Ryan Johnson, who's clearly a film geek, that then would be explicitly alluding to the genre of the Western then as a manifestation of the larger idea or the myth of America or the myth of the West. And so, um, so yeah, I do see that. I mean, I saw it really explicitly at one point. I actually like almost like sat back in my chair when they do a cross cut between Ray and Kylo, Kylo Ren, where he's in all black and she is in white. And she's, you know, with Luke on that island and he's on his base and they were doing this cross cut between the two. And it almost was like black hat, white hat, black hat, white hat. Mm. And it was so explicit that I was like, oh, my God, they're clearly doing the sort of Western binary between the good guy and the bad guy. And and this is the two of them. So I I actually had a question that I've been thinking about this a lot because the, the movie like Luke's early position is kind of fuck the Jedi, the force is about interconnectedness, as you're saying, not about good versus evil. You know, they they, they require each other. Is that in the uh, original trilogy or is that a move? Is that sort uh, of a yeah, new Obi- conception? Yeah, Obi-Wan talks about that a little bit. I, I don't remember it being as explicit, but absolutely. Obi-Wan and Yoda kind of hint at that when they're training Luke and um, it, it is mentioned a few times. And then it's obviously in, in one, two and three too. Qui-Gon talks about that a little bit as well. Um, but I guess, but I guess my, my thing is so, so yeah, it's weird. Like I almost <laughs> identify with Kyle's ambitions a little bit because I think early on Luke is right. Like the, the Jedi are these sort of force fascists that necessitate the creation <laughs> of a greater evil to balance them out. Right. Uh, and, and that, that to me sort of doesn't translate 
I mean, I think there's probably like political illusions going on, but I don't think it translates so well because it's not like in real life, you know, if you have like a really good political leader, it necessitates the creation of like a Hitler or something. (laughs) Um, But, you know, and then when Kylo offers it to her, I'm like, oh, like if it was, you know, Ray, the light side and and Kylo, the the dark side ruling together, maybe that sort of balance out and be fine. And, And to me, it all kind of becomes a clusterfuck when. Snoke says that Ray was essentially created to balance out Kylo's power that she will she will gain proportionally to him and it raises the question if that's happening with Ray does that mean when there is like a very powerful Jedi order that it necessitates the creation of even stronger people on the dark side at which point what is even the point right and, and I, I guess it sort of happens throughout the movies you have the Republic and the Jedi and then Anakin Skywalker gets created and then goes to the dark side to balance them out but then the dark side gets too powerful so he flips forces uh, so well, that is that is mentioned in one, two, and three, where it talks about how there are always two Sith lords, and how um, when one dies, another will rise up because there's always two. That that was the idea is that for the Sith, there are always two, and they're always there to create that balance. That somehow the the Force as such expresses itself in an equal balance between, if you will, the yin and the yang. Right. Right. So what's the point of a Jedi order? <laughs> like, you know, it's a strong Jedi order just going to create super strong Kylo Ren's and super strong Darth Vader's, et cetera, et cetera. Can, can we kind of step back? Because this is the part that, you know, Alec and I talked about this movie a little bit more. And all the discussions about the force, like when Luke is telling Rey why he's not being a Jedi, I kind of just took that as a meaningless platitude and Luke was just basically justifying his reasons of being a coward and that he just couldn't get over the fact that he, uh, you know, created Kylo Ren. But can you guys step back and, and talk a little bit about what information about the Force is given in this episode that we had not previously learned and, and, and what you guys are talking about right now, how that kind of paints our understanding of the previous films? Oh, oh, what new information. So the main the main discussion is when she's meditating and she's like, oh, the force is where you like lift rocks and stuff like that. And he's like, no, everything you just said in that sentence is wrong, which then he says again later to Kylo Ren, um, which I'm like, oh, someone thinks they're being clever with their screenwriting, um, <laughs> which is another reason why I think the film is kind of hokey. But um so, okay, so she's sitting there and she's doing her meditating thing and she's reaching out, not with her actual hand. That was, a, and he slaps her with like a palm leaf or something. Another thing that missed for me. Anyway, I don't know that much is actually taught us that wasn't already understood about the Force. So, well, this whole thing with, 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 with the idea that like Ray is only getting super powerful because Kylo's getting super powerful. Like we've never seen that before. I mean, okay, yeah, I guess, Anakin huh? Skywalker, Anakin Skywalker, and all the other Jedi, like they had to be trained. This, I mean, I think one of the things that a lot of the fans are critical of is the fact that how is Rey so powerful? She still hasn't had a day of training in her life. Yeah, and then. I think to Alec's point, Alec, correct me if I'm wrong, is that Snoke says that there's some sort of balance in the Force that's making her as powerful as him. That seems. Am I am I wrong about that? Or? Yeah, and they make it super explicit in their in their standoff. They're trying to get the lightsaber from each other, and it just cracks in half because it's conveying that they are equally powerful. 
Well, and you saw that a little bit in Force Awakens, though, right? Where they fight each other in the snow. And Snoke actually, Snoke makes a, a reference to that in this film, The Last Jedi, where he's like, oh, some woman that's never been trained or some Jedi that's never been trained beat you in, in the forest or something like that. And uh, that was, right. I remember, it was a triumphant scene at the end of The Force Awakens. But I do remember people are like, wait, how, how does this this person who has never been trained at all, how does she all of a sudden know how to wield this lightsaber like a fucking pro? And how does she know how to wield the force? And how is she so force sensitive, which I guess is the appropriate term, right? <laughs> right. But the, the, the thing is, you could have argued and the people that did argue in the first movie is that, oh, well, Kylo Ren had that wound throughout the movie. Han Solo had been saying, wow, Chewbacca, that weapon you got is super badass that it was trying to establish that uh, Chewbacca's bowcaster is super powerful so that when uh, Chewbacca shoots Kylo Ren, it's justification for the fact that he's so horribly wounded that he would actually be matched with uh, Daisy Ridley or with Rey. Right. But now we don't have that anymore. Now that now that excuse doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, and I thought there was another. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. There, there does seem to be a strange new element to the way that somebody can be more force sensitive. That somehow, that somehow this this yin yang, this duality between Kylo, this connection between Kylo and Rey. Like maybe it's when when they touch hands when they're in the um, the Jedi settlement on the island. That maybe somehow there's like a transfer of power, some connection. It's not explained. It didn't really bother me though. The, the the thing that bothered me that I thought was weird was Princess Leia flying like Superman through space. Like <laughs> I, I've seen in some of the reviews they call it the Mary Poppins moment. Yeah, how did how does she become so force sensitive? Like, yeah, she always had like an intuition, but she never like was like levitating and flying and shit like that. I mean, maybe it was the drama of the moment and the intensity. I don't know, but like was she also more force sensitive because of this this weird uh conflict between the light and the dark side and that somehow that that like reverberated backwards into a strengthening and an empowerment of the various components within each side i don't know uh, it didn't really bother me though the the ray thing as much as it might seem like a plot hole it just kind of was like okay i'll buy into this new element of this myth because we're always learning new things about the force right like the the one, two, and three, when the prequels came out, they were trying to teach us new things, like about the Metachlorians and certain things yeah, like but that, that's, right? Those are, those um, are right, but is that, is that is that have they just totally canned that? Are we to believe that Midichlorians don't exist in this world anymore? <laughs> I mean, maybe they do. Maybe it's like supposed to just you're supposed to call it like remember it because that's what I did. Like I I was sitting there thinking like oh Ray must be like re reading really high on the Metachlorian counter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Do you guys think that Luke Skywalker's condemnation of the Jedi Order, is there a legitimate argument there or is he just making an excuse for the fact that A, Luke Skywalker has now been painted a coward and B, that he just can't deal with the fact that he created Kylo Ren? Because I took it as the latter, but then again, I, I maybe I just tuned out or don't remember all the specifics of what he says, why he's going against the force. Cause ultimately at the end he says, I'm not the last Jedi. The Jedi will live on. Yeah. So, so I mean, I mean, go ahead. I think based on that snow comment, I think early him is right. And the, the, the thing I didn't like about the movie was the end. What I thought was, was, it was going to go, I thought the Luke thing was going to set up this interesting direction where you have this eternal fight between light and dark, but maybe there's a way, you know, sort of the synthesis of the two, you know, this is the gray Jedi theory or something like that, where Luke realizes this, that building powerful Jedi will only create sort of a counterbalance in the force on the dark side. So, you know, 
forge a, a third way through. Um, and, you know, I was interested to see what that third way was, but uh, they, they were just like, nah, before, uh, nah, Luke is gonna, gonna save his sister and stall and he won't be the last Jedi. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is where Benicio del Toro's character actually comes in and, and speaks to this point. When he says at the end, when he's taking the payment after he's betrayed Finn and what's the new character's name? Is it Paige? Rose. Rose. Oh, yeah. Rose? Paige, Paige was her sister. Paige was her yeah, sister, it, right? It was okay. Rose. Yeah. So Rose, that's right. Okay. Uh, when he betrays them and gets his payment, he says something. He's like, look, they kill you today, you kill them tomorrow. And then he says something about like not joining sides, right? A- at another point. And there's something really interesting about that. And it's this idea that that all of these ideas that you think that you've got like this this beautiful soul, this noble idea that you can somehow change things ultimately for better. I think that there's actually like almost a nihilism in Luke where, yeah, I do think that he does feel bad of what happened to uh, Ben. But at the same time, I think he also starts to realize the futility that you can't actually ever defeat the dark side. Like the dark side won't be defeated and that this is this endless cycle. And maybe it's him at the end sort of just relinquishing himself up to the force, so to speak. He's going to come back in the third one as like the little hologram like Obi-Wan did for right. him. I I would I would guarantee, right? Because he didn't actually yeah, I, die. Yeah, I think we're very explicitly meant to – because, you know, he vanishes yeah. into thin air just like Obi-Wan. Exactly. So he's going to come back. So he's giving himself up to the force. And then he's even – remember there was something where Obi-Wan said like, like if you strike me down, Vader, I will come back even stronger. And then Luke kind of mentions something like that too to Kylo Ren when he's hologram fighting him. So I think that there's this idea that he's kind of giving himself up to this balance, this force, this recognition that – listen, right now it seems like the resistance is dead because there's only a few hundred people or something like that. But then that little boy with his little ring and his like power stance at the end – shows that no there will always be another person to come up and take the cause for justice and i think that's what the theme is supposed to be so this benicio del toro idea that's like hey look they kill you today but you'll get them tomorrow and then they'll get you and then you'll get them tomorrow it's it's perpetuating this idea of this endless struggle that's never ever ever going to end and that's really what i thought was kind of the interesting theme even though i think that the whole idea of of Finn and Rose going to that uh, that uh, planet made absolutely no sense to the plot because they didn't <laughs> actually accomplish anything. They didn't find the coder. All it did was set up one, a sort of like little romance thing between them, and then a whole lot of like moralizing. Like, ah, we got to let animals go because they're being mistreated. So don't do that. Ah, rich people are powerful and terrible. Ah, arms sales uh, and the military industrial complex. That's corrupt as fuck. And ah, yeah, it set up all of these things, but... It didn't actually do anything except for maybe provide some thematic moralizing that I think was important to the overall plot. Yeah, because then you have to establish the kids who are going to join the resistance. And well, the, the one thing I will say is that I think that ultimately Luke does – he rejects this idea that I'm just going to let the force – I'm not going to wield the force. I'm just going to let it do its own thing because right. at the end – like hope and the resistance is about to be murdered. And the only way that he's able to not only preserve hope to preserve the light, but amplify the light is by using the force to project himself to um, not only distract the first order and allow what's left of the resistance to escape, but ultimately to inspire a new, either a new generation or just, you know, the, once again, the legend of Luke Skywalker spreads. We see the kids playing with the toys, uh, and that, you know, because basically the whole plan for the resistance to survive was that Leia said, oh, you know, we just need to get to this one place and then I'm going to put out a distress signal and all, all our allies will come. And she does that and the allies don't come. And so 
whether or not, even if without Luke, the resistance was able to escape, there's only like 10 of them and they would have never been able to get that distress signal out and they would have never been able to regroup only by creating the legend of Luke Skywalker of him being this invincible Jedi. Does that story create basically a better beacon uh, that will enable more people to join the resistance. Yeah, it reminds me so a it lot. Is, it, it, me- it is him it is it is him using the force that ultimately allows for the resistance to continue going. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of a ragtag group of Palestinian Jews whose uh, messianic leader was murdered 2,000 years ago and then <laughs> decided to say, hey, guess what? He rose from the dead and then they created a whole fucking movement out of it. <laughs> it's, it's the same sort of idea is if you have that the imitatio dei is is what Thomas Akempis calls it, the imitation of Christ, right? If you have that that beacon, that thing that can bind a group of people together that's more powerful than just if Luke came and single-handedly fought Kylo Ren, right? Right. What would be more we don't power- need heroes. We need a symbol. Exactly. Because when you have a symbol, then you have a whole generation of heroes, right? You have Rose who sacrifices herself to save Finn because you don't fight against what you hate. You fight for something you love, right? So if you can create that positive desire for freedom or that positive desire for something to live for, then you can create a movement, so to speak. So I, that's kind of what's going on there is there's a real death of God moment in this thing too. And and I mean death of God in the positive sense, not like <laughs> uh, like hardcore atheism, but like get rid of the books and get rid of the tree and get rid of like the the religious aspects that go along with uh, kind of like, you know, needing to have like ritual worship and thergic religion and stuff like that. And it's no, Ray has the light that's inside of her and she has everything that she's going to need, even though she may have like kept the books and whatnot, but whatever, right. we'll find out in, in the next one. But the point is, is that you don't need the sort of sacraments, so to speak. Uh, it's just, it's in you and it's in the people that you're in, in co- and cahoots with. That's where the real power lies. So it's kind of a, a sacrificial imitation symbol myth-making move where Luke kind of offers himself up to the force to realize, hey, if, if we're going to have a chance to survive and we will have a chance to survive, it requires actions like this. So I think I, that's I, I also think this created some ambiguity because in this way, it's sort of remember the past is important. Myth making is important. I didn't necessarily go straight to, to Jesus, but I went straight to Harvey Dent because I don't know. <laughs> well, it's the same thing. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Come on. Uh, yeah. So but but I think we're getting two conflicting messages because on one end, myth making is important these new people are obviously going to remember the past but at the same time we're also learning to forget the past kylo uh not kylo ray's parents don't matter and that's okay she has everything she doesn't need the jedi text because everything she needs to know is inside of her but then she saves them anyway so where do we sort of stand with that that's the holy spirit man (laughs) (laughs) there's there's a point that alec brought up in the quick take that i actually want to get austin's thoughts on uh so there are a lot of parallels, kind of like almost baited parallels between this and The Empire Strikes Back. So, you know, we think that Rey is going to get trained by Luke, just how uh, Yoda trained right. Luke. We think that Rey's reveal of her parents is going to be this epic paradigm shifting thing. And I guess it is in an, to an extent, but not really. So I want to talk about the last scene that uh, in where the resistance is defending themselves from the First Order and it's in that salt planet which looks a lot like Mm. Hoth and Mm. I thought that 
Alec brought up a really good point. He's saying that the salt is significant because maybe. instead of I so, it's maybe it's significant. <laughs> maybe significant. Although I, I like this reading, and I, that's why I want to get uh, Austin's idea, is that it's like salting the earth. Mm. Ryan Johnson essentially has salted the earth of Star Wars lore or like the narrative tropes that have established the IP here and basically saying that it, it's like a visual indicator, a thematic indicator. It's like, oh, you think I'm going to do uh, The Empire Strikes Back all over again? Well, here's a Hoth scene that instead of snow, it's salt because I have salted the earth to where, in a sense, Star Wars is lovingly destroyed to the point where you can we can no longer just create a new hope again does that make sense yeah i mean which which to fans would be like really fucked up right if if he's like right. he's like oh you wanted this well i'm not gonna do that motherfuckers so then i can see why certain hardcore fans would be kind of offended by that because they might see that as like an intentional slight against them well what do you think do you, do you think do you think it's better to respect the auteur's vision or to give fans what they want depends how good it is i yeah i i can understand both sides i'll start with that i i completely understand it i am not as partial to um fanboy culture as others might be i am much more interested in an artist doing his or her own thing so in that sense i always appreciate a bold move i appreciate when someone is like i'm gonna do my own thing because i don't think it's actually disrespectful i think the only reason it could be perceived as disrespectful is because one's expectations are thwarted or circumvented right which you yeah. know that Ryan Johnson isn't actually sitting there reading message boards on Reddit going like, ooh, I'm going to fuck with all of you fanboys. Of course but he's not doing he that. He's, he's wait, trying wait, but to why, be— why, Wait, why, why do you think that? See, I think we're in a, in a stage where all filmmakers are doing that. Kind you of. Think? Like, not all, but a lot of them. I kind of think so, yeah. I, how is it—I mm. don't think it's possible for him to not be aware of these things. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I don't think—I'm not saying he's not aware. I just don't know that he's so, like— vindictive or not vindictive what's the word i'm looking for that he's so like fuck you i'm gonna intentionally do this against you i, I don't know if it's that But i don't harsh. think it's a, a fuck you like i think like most cinema uses misdirection <laughs> yeah I, I can agree with that so this is going back to, and maybe i'm thinking about this the wrong way maybe this is just because it's too personal to me but i do think that he there could be a greater statement on the way that film is consumed in general. I mean, I don't think I think it's almost impossible for Ryan Johnson not to be aware of the fact that the web has bred this whole cottage industry of a certain kind of film analysis that's all about speculating about lore. You know, it's not something we do at Wisecrack. I hate lore. You know, we mostly try to talk about subtext. We talk about appreciation of form, uh, stuff like that. But it's basically just people speculating about plot details and in a sense, if if I'm going back to my thesis about how Ryan Johnson is reclaiming this movie for cinema rather than Star Wars fans or rather for lore, if someone were to say like, oh, fuck Ryan Johnson because he's telling me that it doesn't matter who Snoke is. He's telling me it doesn't matter who Ray's parents are. It doesn't matter who Phasma is. I would say he's right because cinema is way more about how something is communicated rather than what is communicated. And I think that in a, is he abrasively trying to tell his fans that? Trying, I mean, I'm probably stretching, but in a way, for somebody who you know deals with analysis and is on, is constantly seeing this cottage industry of pure speculation about uh, you know with no actual respect for the rigor of the tradition of how to engage with media, 
that's just how it kind of resonated with me personally. Well, if that's the case, then I think that the film for me is even worse because (laughs) because all of the things that I criticize this film for would only be magnified because I'm not criticizing it based on it, like not filling in the plot holes or not being kind of true to the the fan lore that was that was bandied about on the the Reddit. You know, what, what are they called? The sub Reddit things, whatever, for the last couple of years. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm not, I'm not a Redditor obviously, as I'm pulling myself (laughs) off of social media these days. Um, but, uh, but, but, uh, I think that it was overly dramatic. It was drippingly sentimental. Like the, they, they hovered over like the princess Leia. Now I cried like a little bitch when princess Leia first came up on screen (laughs) because Carrie Fisher passed away Mm -hmm. and I was like, Oh, Carrie Fisher. I mean, I love Carrie Fisher. I mean, I cried through this film. I'm not going to lie. It's still tugged on my, I'm a crier anyway, but um, <laughs> it, it, t- it tugged on my heartstrings for sure a few times, but it was so, it tried so hard to drive these points home, whether it was like the moral bits that, that was like, ah, oh, well, we can't do this. So now we have to go do this. And then these people are going to come rescue us. Oh no, they can't come rescue us because they're, they've left us alone. And it was so much trumped up drama that I felt like I was watching like Saved by the Bell or something like that, you know? Um, and it was so expositional. It was like, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do and tell you why we have to do it because this didn't happen and that didn't happen. And they're like, oh, that's right. And you had to do that because that didn't happen over there. So now we have to do this. And they're like, that's right. And then we have to go do this. And they're like, oh, but we can't do that because the four and it was so it was so poorly written i thought from that perspective that i that i just if it's the case that it, this is just supposed to be like a standalone auteur vision then i think it fails really badly because maybe yeah, it see, like existed in that in-between space where it wasn't fan lore giving us the plot points, which would have just fed to some nostalgic vision which would have been nice for some and then it wasn't just like a really well-written space adventure, which would have been fucking cool. It was like, I don't know. It existed in this weird drama space. And I, I just, uh. see, I, I'm with you, Austin, because this goes back to my initial reaction to the movie. I like, I'm having more fun thinking about it and talking about, you know, the, the balls that Ryan Johnson had in the direction, what it means for the series. But during the actual viewing experience, I was bored out of my mind Dude, for exactly some too. of the same reasons you said. So much of it was expositional. The whole thing about uh, Finn and Rose having to find this coder to hack a certain <laughs> part of a spaceship, you know, just yeah. who the fuck is even listening? And another thing is uh, I felt a lot of times there was just so many scenes that were reminiscent of other scenes. Like how many times do I have to see people looking out a window of their ships being destroyed and having to make a choice? And I love the shit out of Laura Dern, but man, her character just didn't do anything for me. And again, and again, Laura Dern, oh, she's not really being a traitor. She's actually being a bigger hero than you'll ever know. Like how <laughs> right. how hokey is that? I, I just felt like it was – Star Wars always has a moral kernel. It always has that idea, right? Like Alec alluded to it earlier about this kind of like the fascism of the light side, right? That that some leftist critics have leveled against Star Wars. And I get that. I, I, I can totally see that. But it's always had this moral center to it, like the good versus the bad, the light versus the dark. And and, and it's never – even though I'm, I'm socially aware and critical of that type of convenient narrative, um, it's never actually detracted from my enjoyment of the film. This film – 
however, seemed so heavy handed with its moralizing that it was just too much for me. It was too much. I mean, when the fucking text comes up on the screen, I got teary eyed and I was like, oh, my God, I'm thinking about my mom and shit. And then like the first scene, I'm like, "Okay, I'm into this. And then like 15 minutes in, I'm like, "Okay, I can let that slide. I can let that slide. About like 20, 30 minutes in, I was like, Austin, I don't think you like this movie. Like you got to stop. You got to stop being negative. Like stop being negative and just enjoy this. And then the next 10 minutes went by and I was like, dude, this is actually, I'm not enjoying this. And about an hour in, I was like, this is actually bad. This is a bad movie. Yeah. And- I, I, I kind of thought there was something wrong with me too. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I just didn't have enough for lunch. Cause I'm not liking this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that sort of bothered me was we talk about this in our quick take, but there's this kind of theme of don't be a hero or don't be a traditional hero. Poe is always trying to go guns a blazing and Admiral vice Admiral Hodo is, you know, don't do that. And too many people are dying and all this shit. And when Finn goes on like a suicide run, he's stopped by Rose who says it's not about necessarily fighting your enemies. It's about protecting what you love or what you care about. Forget the exact phrasing, which kind of informs a lot because Luke Skywalker, you could argue just force projects his image to stall for Leia because he cares about Leia and maybe he cares about the resistance stalled for enough time to protect them. It's not necessarily about killing Kylo Ren because maybe he could have probably done that. Right. If he was a hero, he would have just showed up and fought him. Yeah. But then it doesn't make sense because Admiral Hodo, Vice Admiral Hodo literally does exactly what Finn did in space. Like Finn, Finn by ramming that thing would have, you know, protected the rebels so that they could escape and Holdo jumped to light speed and ran through the Imperial cruisers, the first order cruisers to, you know, stall enough to get them so that they could uh, safely get away. So like, why is one okay and not the other? I guess you could say, unlike Poe, she wasn't showy about it. Like she just sort of like quietly resigned herself to it, but that seemed kind of like a cop out. What do you guys think? Well, if if we're trying to d- draw a distinction between you know showiness not being important, the entire thing with Luke Skywalker is the fact that he was showy is what ultimately allows <laughs> the resistance to amplify and maintain hope. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's the one moment of the film that's pretty thematically inconsistent with with what they had established previously. And you know, this is what I meant by maybe my mind will change after the third installment that ambiguity is fine. Usually, it needs to get wrapped up or purpose be ambiguous on purpose and if they do something interesting with it in the third one then i'll feel much better about it like if it sort of develops more yeah again i just thought my frustration with it was it was just too heavy-handed you know it was it was like force feeding the audience's throat this is what heroism is or this is not what heroism is and you know what it just and, and some people like, OK, there are some wonderful things about this film. There's obviously diversity um, that, you know, at a level that hadn't been seen before in terms of ethnic diversity and uh, and and gender diversity. So that's that's obviously an important thing. That's a good thing. There are some interesting progressive values, but there's a way to like handle these themes without without being like dogmatic. And I think that I have maybe it's because of my like conversion to dogmatic Christianity and then conversion out of it uh, during my formative intellectual years. Like I wasn't raised Christian. I had like a radical conversion to it. So I felt dogmatism and then I had a radical conversion out of it. So it was like, I think I like am allergic 
to anything that's like, this is what heroism is, you know, yeah. or like, this is what bad people are. They're the ones who sell guns to the first order or this is what bad people are. They exploit animals and we got to let them free. And then we're going to tell you about it as we're doing it. Yeah. And to me, I see that. And first of all, it actually detracts from the power of it. It doesn't make it, it doesn't stick with me as much. Um, and obviously I know I'm sensitive to that and I know not every viewing member will be as sensitive to that but like jared said a minute ago this is like this is like marvel's bread and butter right like those jokes but not only that the sort of moralizing that we are the good guys because we do x or they are the bad guys because they do y and that's sort of that's really problematic i think um one because i think it's lazy thinking and i think that the more lazy thinking we perpetuate the more difficult it becomes to be critical in our analyses of the world but also I think it really just detracts from the power of the story, you know, and it's, that's not what art is. Art is supposed to be subtle and it's supposed to shock you to thought. It's supposed to stimulate your thinking. It's supposed to disrupt your comfort zones and, and make you feel a certain way and shift you at the micro-psychobiological level, not be like, hey, this is what you should think. I mean that's that's Twitter bullshit, you know, and I feel like this is like the Star Wars movie for the Twitter generation and I just eh. – <laughs> So uh, I think – Austin, to your point about, uh, I guess, the moralistic message, like, I think one of the last things we can talk about is, uh, and this is something Alec brought up in the quick take again, is how it seems that Ryan Johnson is abrasively changing the course to where our heroes are no longer princesses, they're no longer virgin birth people, they're no longer people of royal blood, they're now janitors, pipe cleaners, and people whose parents were drunk junkers. Right. And is that also part of the what you would consider the progressive message that the movie is trying to espouse? Well, we saw that uh, in The Force Awakens too, right? She's General Leia, not Princess Leia, right? Although at one point, I think the First Order do refer to her as Princess Leia in this movie. And I remember I caught that because they were like, oh, the princess. And then when they go to like the people in the uh, the Resistance, they refer to her as General. Um, yeah, I think they – Yeah, right, but more to, the, more to the point of just – they could have made Rey a Kenobi or a Palpatine or a Skywalker, but no, she's just some rando. Well, so far, right? Like, we don't know for certain. Like, Kylo Ren, that's kind of a throwaway line. It kind of comes in there and he says, oh, your parents were this and they probably just sold you for a drink or something like that. Was he saying that just to be hurtful? Was he saying that based on actual knowledge? Like, did he actually see that? We don't really know yet. Right. Like, but, we yeah. know, but doesn't, but we don't but doesn't he say he says you've known it all along. And then, like, you know, she has this look on her face like, oh, you know, I'm resigned to accept what I've always known. I mean, that's how I read it. And, and, you know, they could change it. But even absent that, you know, they definitely lay some groundwork in The Force Awakens. But I think that in this one, they're much more explicit about it. And actually, this is one of the things I appreciated. Like, I didn't think this was ham-fisted. I'm wondering if you disagree. But so you've got Ray, the Jedi of Junker parents. You've got Finn, who's a janitor. He was obviously in Force Awakens. But then you have Rose, who's a pipe mechanic. And... Between them and also I think there's like a nice tie into Rogue One because the whole thing about Rogue One is here are the sort of people on the ground who are sacrificing their lives that when we're retelling these stories easily get forgotten. And I think it has an interesting overlay, which is general, like the general writing of history, right? Like we hear about the general patents and we hear about mm. the Oliver Cromwells, but we hear less except in the aggregate of, you know, uh, Billy, whatever, who you know, was a 
soldier, you know, one of the thousands or tens of thousands who, who died. And granted that like sometimes changes a little bit, you know, with all of our World War II movies and stuff like that. But, you know, Rogue One is all about one of the, the writers in our writing room referred to it as all the red shirts. You know, the red shirts in Star Trek are the disposable security guards. And Rogue One is really the story of the red shirts and, and the sacrifice mm. that they made. And I think this similarly, like, first of all, and this is where maybe my having not seen the the original trilogy in a while comes in. There's just like a ton of people getting visibly incinerated, like in space, uh, almost as you know that happens in like the fight uh, with the the Death Star and stuff like that. That some of the pilots die, but it just we're so often reminded like of the casualties that Poe is inflicting by destroying this dreadnought. We see you know the people dying and you know all the ships dying and. With, when your heroes are a janitor, janitor, a pipe mechanic, and the the daughter of Junkers, I think it's trying to, and this gets back to that salting the earth thing, is <clears throat> the original Star Wars was all about that trope of, oh, look, you think you're uh, just a modest farmer, but really you're a prince, would have been the old story, but now, you know, you're mm. force powerful or whatever, and then it's revealed later that you're actually the son of, you know, Darth Vader and can Skywalker, who is a virgin birth. It's all about these line- lineages. And besides Han Solo, you have Princess Leia, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, I think, really moving away from that where your heroes are sort of your everyday people. And then at the end to sort of reinforce this, the sort of quasi symbol, not the symbol of resistance, but a symbol of the resistance is that poor stable boy uh, flicking his little Nancy Drew ring or whatever it is. Well, I also I think I just dis- I disagree with you, Austin, in saying that that was established in The Force Awakens, because I think that one, The Force Awakens was setting up the idea that Rey could have similarly been a Skywalker. But not only that, but it was also setting up that Luke Skywalker, you know, essentially the prince, the son of Anakin Skywalker, the one who's, you know, his uh, it's in his blood to be great. It does set him up to be the savior if whoever is making the next movie chose to for it right. to be you know because he's the one that that's the key the resistance as long as we can find luke skywalker everything will be okay but then ryan johnson took that and just threw it in the toilet and said nope the the royals aren't doing shit it's time for the little man to be the the beacon of hope. they still do some shit to be fair just some of right <laughs> but but at the end of the day the royals are the cowards well and, and what he does is he sacrifices himself he gives himself up like jared said earlier to the force to allow himself to be that beacon to let the everyman i guess rise up and and serve and take power all right well that about does it Uh, this has been a really interesting conversation i want to thank both my co-hosts austin and alec it's been a lot of fun talking to you about this very divisive very interesting movie whether or not we enjoyed it i think it's uh spurred on a great conversation and i think that has something to say for itself so I uh, just want to remind you guys, we've also got the Thug Notes Get Lit podcast where Sparky Sweets PhD, a.k.a. Greg, is breaking down some of the best books ever written. We're continuing to do our South Park podcast called Respect Our Authorita. That's happening every other week. And we've also got our Rick and Morty podcast, The Squanch, also going on every other week. So be sure to check those out. You can find them on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you guys enjoyed or didn't enjoy the movie, however you felt about it. I hope this uh, maybe gave some clarity to some of your feelings. And that's it for me. Bye-bye, guys. Peace, everybody. Later. Later.